take advantage of the tools to be communicating and educating all the time with your, uh, you know, with your key audiences. That, that is both a, an opportunity and it's a defense. Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Egnall, President and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence? Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. Welcome to season two of the Inspire podcast. I'm Bart Egnall. I'm president and CEO of the Humphrey Group. And for two decades, yes, it's been two decades, uh, I've been in the business of helping clients speak as leaders. And my firm, the Humphrey Group, brings together over 50 people worldwide who share my passion and love to work with clients who want to inspire. You know, when I launched this podcast a year ago, it was with the intention of learning from that team, from our clients, and from other thought leaders about what inspiration means to them and how they communicate in a way that not only conveys information, but really the ideas that they're passionate about to bring about change at work and even more broadly in the world. And the the intention there was to take the lessons that they had and share them with you, our listeners. And the support and feedback I've gotten on that first season has been fabulous. I'd like to take a moment to thank you for listening, to thank you for all the feedback, the reviews you gave. It's really been the reason why we're now back for another season of inspiring conversations. And as we restart season two, it's fair to say that the world of leadership is changing. It's no longer the CEO at the podium barking orders who is the only person who can inspire. Today, inspirational leadership comes in so many forms. It's happening every moment. It takes place across a wide variety of communication channels. And it's all happening in an ever-changing world where we are distracted and competition for our attention is fierce. In this time of change, we at the Humphrey Group are reimagining what inspirational communication is. And I'll be sharing some of that thinking with you over the course of this season. But the real beating heart of this podcast are the guests who come, give their time, and tell their stories. And this year, I've got some great conversations. Uh, A former White House Deputy Press Secretary, the General Manager of an MLSE, Uh, championship soccer franchise, the chief investment officer of an exceptional asset management firm, and so many more. So I invite you to sit back, relax, and prepare to be inspired. So my guest today on the Inspire podcast is Tony Fratto. And I am super excited to have Tony on. We met in Washington when he was moderating a discussion between two former chief of staffs in the White House, Dennis McDonough and Joshua Bolton. He left the U.S. Treasury at the level of assistant secretary of the Treasury, who then moved to the White House, where he was deputy assistant to the president and uh, principal deputy press secretary. His current iteration is as founder of Hamilton Place Strategies, which is a communications consulting firm. And Tony, you'll have to tell me if I'm getting this right, but it's a firm that kind of melds all of your expertise, helping regulated industries and finance and agriculture, I believe, 
understand how to achieve their policy outcomes. Is, is yeah, that, get that? We also we also work on on healthcare and you know, interesting transportation issues and some energy and climate issues also. But what all of those sectors of the economy have in in common is they're highly regulated sectors of the economy. They're places mm-hmm. where the you know regulators and the federal government policymakers, actually not just here in the United States but globally, have a big hand in how businesses in those sectors conduct their business, how they, you know, how they deliver products and services to people. Governments have a big involvement. So we have some some expertise in that and it, uh, we help them communicate and try to get policy in the right place. And having having been on the other side, I'm sure you're uniquely qualified to provide some insight into how to achieve that. It definitely doesn't hurt to have been on, on the other side of the desk, you know, to have uh, been in the policymaking mm-hmm. role and, and communicating at the, at the federal level on, on big, complex issues mm-hmm. and having a sense of understanding what government is actually saying when they say things. And, and we'll get to, to delving into some of your expertise, but I, I do have to start with the most important question sure. I have for you, which is how realistic was the West Wing. <laughs> West Wing? Well, West Wing well, I guess West Wing has... I watch uh, every episode, so I, this is a right. rare opportunity for me to ask. <laughs> yeah. So the West Wing would actually do a lot of its filming on that uh, East hmm. Executive Drive uh, near the East Wing. And you still have a different view of the White House, and it looks like you're at the White House but you're not within that, that particularly secure zone. And so, but to be able to do that, they needed someone to sign, you know, the Secret Service had to sign off on it. And the Secret Service would ask someone to review the script and make sure that it was okay. So that was my, one of, one of my jobs. Really? Was to like read the, read the script <laughs> and make sure that they weren't going to do something, you know, that we found offensive or crazy. Right. And I, I never had to change a single thing. So, that, so they were always very respectful of, the, you know the building and the grounds and uh, the hmm. people. So they never they never did it. They never suggested anything crazy. But it's fun to be able to read and read the script and see where they were going. And sometimes you're you know reading things that you weren't going to see on TV for a, a year. Right. But it was uh, but it was really but it was really cool. And and I would tell you because knowing that having that window into it, I always had a lot of respect for how they they did. They actually did present things pretty accurately. Uh, there were certain things that if you were a, if you were a staffer in the White House. Or the kind, some of the kinds of things that they would do that would drive you crazy. Just like, you know, in if you watch the West Wing, the TV show, it's always darkly lit. You know, mm-hmm. so it's always like this, you know, sort of dark. It's not. That's not the White, the White House is bright. Mm-hmm. You know, lights are on everywhere. We have overhead lights, desk lights. There's lights everywhere, so it's not a dark place. Mm-hmm. It's a. It's a bright. It's a bright place. And, uh, you know, little, you know, there were little nits like, you know, the, you know, they always had the president getting out of the wrong side of the limousine and you know, things, <laughs> you know, things like that. They never, they were never uh, correct. But, but overall, you know, the way people work together, the way they interact with each other, the, the rhythm of the day, I always thought they got those, those mm-hmm. things really pretty close to accurate. You know, they got a lot of the politics, mm-hmm. you know, pretty close to accurate. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then House of Cards came along mm-hmm. and, and that was a fantasy show, right? It was like, that didn't resemble reality at all. But, you know, I travel the world a lot and I give a lot of talks and would, you know, see people. And I can't tell you how many times I got questions from people who th- they believed that House of Cards was a more accurate representation <laughs> of the way things are in Washington mm-hmm. than the West Wing. And I just thought, boy, mm-hmm. this is really unfortunate if that's well, what they and, and that's kind of a perfect segue to our topic, you know, which is, you know, the, the West Wing kind of represents how the world was per, or perceived perhaps when you were yeah. in the in the White House. I mean, you know, House of Cards is a, is a, even though it's over now, more indicative of the world today. And I know what we talked about is, 
you know, the world and how the world communicates has changed yeah. dramatically in the last you know, 15 years. I, I see it in my business and you obviously see it on the, the front lines. And so I thought we could talk um, about that, about those changes yeah. and, you know, what you've seen talking about, you know, and I think we you know, a couple broad themes, you know, one is the environment, uh, the media and communication environment, how it's changed. Second, the medium through which organizations and, and governments choose to communicate and must communicate. And then, you know, the audience and the message we use to reach them. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's this kind of a, a bit of a different um, perspective that I've never, I've never had from someone on this podcast. So mm-hmm. let's delve into it and let's start with yeah. then and now when it comes to the, the media and communications environment. The, the technological change uh, in communications has always had a pretty big impact. We can talk about how much it's changed with uh, this particular president and how he uses he personally uses those those mm-hmm. platforms. But there used to be a rhythm to the news cycle, you know, where in the 60s, 70s, 80s, you were focused on the evening news. Mm-hmm. You know, the new television was going to be important for reaching the most people with pictures and in bite-sized ways. So you would build for the the news of the day that was going to be the thing that people were going to see when they sat after dinner in front of the television and watched the evening news on one of the big three broadcast networks. That was super important. Mm-hmm. By the 90s, you have the 24-hour news cycle. So uh, cable news uh, was going to be more immediate and drive some of that coverage during the day. So you had to worry about the day a little bit more. You had to worry about the morning a little bit more. And uh, what people were seeing before they went off to work. So that changed the rhythm a, a, a little bit and made it you know, much more immediate. And White Houses were choosing to find ways to communicate more during the day than they did. The Clinton administration did, you know, did a little bit more of this. You had the daily press briefing that became very, mm-hmm. uh, you know, very important and watched. And all of a sudden now uh, it would be on TV. Um, hmm. you, know, you could turn on CNN and watch the, uh, the daily press briefing at the White House uh, that, that you never saw before. By the time we, you know, we came in in the 2000s, that structure was still there. We were, you know, still doing the daily press briefings. We were still focused, thinking about the evening news, and uh, there was still some rhythm to the day. I think the thing that has changed over the past, you know, five or six years is that there is no rhythm to the day anymore. The ability for not just a White House, but the president himself, to use in this case with this president to use Twitter to communicate immediately with the world whenever it strikes him has meant that there is no clock anymore. Like the clock has gone away. The rhythm of the day has gone away. He could tweet at any point in time. He can make announcements that have uh, significant policy consequences at any point in time. He can communicate with foreign leaders at any point in time of the day. He could do all of those things in the morning without leaving his bed. Right. So this sense of like what the rhythm of the news is, what the message of the day is, what the thing that people at home are going to hear and see has been completely disrupted. And I don't think we I don't think, you know, this particular president has a uh, way of using this tool that he's developed that maybe he believes is effective for himself. I don't I don't know that it's the most effective way (laughs) to use it. Right. It's debatable. And I would argue that it isn't the best way to use it but however mm-hmm. what a lot of my you know former a lot of my friends uh, who are the white house reporters bemoan the fact that there is you know most days 
uh, anymore. There isn't a daily briefing by the press secretary. And while they miss it, I think it's a fair question to ask whether anybody else misses it, right? Like, do the American they people can, They can it? get it directly from the source now. Exactly. The, the disruption of the norms, I mean, we see this in the corporate world as well. You know, we're used to, you know, quarterly reports or internally there'd be a town hall. And now people expect that kind of communication in the moment, on demand from everyone. Now, do you think in the work that you're doing at Hamilton Place, is, is the president an anomaly or is he... A, a, an indicator of a broader trend that you see of kind of an erosion of this kind of norm, more normal patterns of communication. That's a, that's such a great question. The way you asked it, I mean, is it is it an erosion or an anomaly? I mean, I think it's been unsettling, right? I think I mean mm-hmm. people use the word disruptive a lot. It's been disruptive, and I think we're in a very disruptive period right now. And I, and I say this, you know, in the, in the same way that like, you're, you know, your toddler can be very disruptive when you give them, but you know, I, uh, you I know, have one, it. I feel it. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, when they're trying to figure out how to use the things that, that you put in front of them, it looks very disruptive. Mm-hmm. I do think that people are, you know, pr- you know pr- prone to one, want order and predictability. And I think while we sort out these tools for communicating over time, both the users and the consumers mm-hmm. of news are going to settle into, um, once again, you know, slightly more predictive mm-hmm. uh, kinds of ways of receiving their news because you could, because it's unsustainable this way. It's unsustainable to live your life where, right. you know, you could be surprised by a significant news um, uh, event at any given time, you know, now I said at the same time, you know, yes, about in, you know, in my job, I mean, like, there's so there, there are a couple ways I think about that. We, you know, we do use uh, social media to communicate a whole mm-hmm. lot, you know, a, a lot more. We try to be very smart about it and, you know, well targeted and try to think about the, the principle that I just said, which is a sense of predictability, letting people see things when uh, they, they want to see them because we believe they'll be more engaged and pay, you know, pay more attention to it and just have the the um, the time available to uh, to see it. So we think about those things about how the how people are consuming news, but on the production of information, um, you know, it may change the way uh, we release things. So, like you know, you talked about quarterly earnings. Um, you know, like there's that the, you know things that are disrupting a little bit more might be the sense that earnings and forward guidance and mm-hmm. you know the performance at a firm should only happen quarterly, you know, mm-hmm. should it happen. And I know there's a, there's a, there's a great concern that, uh, you know, we're too short-term oriented and it seems paradoxical, but it might be better if we were, if there were more, mm-hmm. um, you know, less episodic, but more almost, you know, streaming, you know, views mm-hmm. of the firm and unshackle it from these like high stress quarterly mm-hmm. periods where people are trying to, you know, beat expect you know give guidance and beat expectations and you're beating you know it's like oh they were hit it on the penny or they were penny <laughs> so over that study that shows on average they beat it by like two cents a share <laughs> every yeah exactly yeah. you know though, though and, the and sec also, wasn't particularly happy with elon musk when he unshackled himself from the quarterly <laughs> prepared statements and, you know regulars may have to start thinking you know more about this as well and mm-hmm. that and, and 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 maybe you know let technology bring more information to 
uh, investors in more in more timely ways. We said like that's the principle, right. right? It's like one thing like we want we want company we want public companies to be transparent about you know communicating with investors and market participants. Uh, we see a public good in that, and all I'm saying is that technology might be there to do it in better ways right. that have other benefits. It. Governments have the same you know same issue. I mean, and, you know one, one example is every month the first Friday after the first Monday of every month, we have the jobs uh, report mm-hmm. that comes out, the non-farm payrolls data. And it's a big number that markets around the world and investors around the world pay close attention to and very, very important data point. And I look at that and I say, I don't, I don't understand why we have these, why, why this should be a big event. Why don't we report you know, where we are on, uh, on you know, modeling uh, the jobs outlook every day? Mm-hmm. It's not that complicated. Could even have sort of a running, you know, ticker uh, on you know where jobs are going. So now no one needs to be surprised at the, the end of the month or and have these like you know people throwing out mm. expectations on. It's like you could just see it where you know how things are looking. Are they trending upward this month? Are they trending downward? And mm-hmm. there may be there are ways to do that. There are ways to use technology and uh, you know survey information and uh, feed in all of the the information that we're seeing from data collection everywhere to make this more streamlined mm-hmm. and more useful for uh, for market participants. And I think that would be, you know, that would be good. And would that be disruptive? Absolutely would mm-hmm. be disruptive. It would change the way people think about how they get information. And if we're trending towards more information, more timely ways, more transparency, those are probably good things to do. Mm-hmm. And I think you're, you're alluding to this, time we're in of great uncertainty you know you've talked about this shift in the environment and you know from very predictable to to really a time where we're not even sure what the rhythm will look like you've also talked about the fact that we have this variety of tools that we can use the new digital ones but also still the old school communication i know when we talked last time you said that even though these new digital tools are fundamentally altering the ways that we can communicate and the rhythms of communication paradoxically people are actually forgetting that the power yeah. of old school communication tools and channels. Maybe you could talk a bit about that. The reliance on technology is allowing people to actually forget that there are, there are actually some very effective old-fashioned ways mm. of, of communicating with people that are still pretty useful. I mean, there's a, there are a lot of examples. I mean, one of them is, you know, we were involved in an effort a few years ago to move a, it's an important piece of legislation. There were lots of efforts going on to try to re- reach members of Congress. And, you know, and I came up with an I- idea that was like a really old fashioned, going back to the, you know, 90s kind of idea, <laughs> which was to do a pocket card to put in, put on the desks of members of Congress with huh. some essential information. It's like, you know, I, I bet there, there are people who I was working with who had never seen it, never heard of a pocket <laughs> card, never saw a pocket card. Like, what's a pocket card? They're like, is that the new app? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know? And it's like, really, no, it's a card that could fit in your pocket that has some basic pieces of information on that they could, they could use uh, to cite. You know, it's like, get that. And we'll put it on the committee desks. So, you know, everyone on the, as a member sits down at their desk and see the information that's, you know, unique to their district and, and they could carry it around with them in their pocket. It's like, man, that's a really old fashioned, low tech, low fi way of doing things, but it was very, very effective. And it was exactly what was needed in that moment. People are forgetting how useful things like radio still are, Hmm. you know, uh, they ignore drive time radio in the mornings and evenings and so there's still a lot of people who you know when they're driving to work in the morning or they're driving home at night they are listening to 
the local news on uh, you know news and weather on the eights traffic what the local sports team did the, you know getting their local news on that on that drive home so it's huge and it's been it's undervalued right now hmm. uh, because people are putting their you know resources into Facebook and Twitter and so, you know you have to do those things too I'm just saying it's an underutilized again the, like the technology is the technology that you know, FDR used on fireside chats, right? This is not, right? It's, it's, right? It still it's, works. <laughs> it still works because there's still like, you know, tens of millions of people that that's how they, or that's one of the ways they still actually enjoy getting, um, you know, getting news every day. So there are a lot of those kinds of, you know, ways of reaching people. We tend to be a society that chases the shiny right. object around and over invest in the shiny object and forget about, you know, the, 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 you know, some of the tried and true methods. Now there's some way, there's some things that, uh, you know, really should go, go by the way. So I'm, I'm always, I'm still surprised. I'm a newspaper lover. I love newspapers. So my, I still get the times. <laughs> I get the, I get the, I get the times on the weekends and I yeah. get the FT and I get the FT daily and I, mm-hmm. and I love them, but I'm always surprised when I see that someone has, you know, put in, you know, put in full page ads in some yeah. newspapers because no one is opening up the newspapers anymore. You know, right. um, it's, it's, it is, it's really, it's really rare that getting something in the paper newspaper has the reach and meaning. This, you know, so that's that's true. That's a fact. It's really hard to have an impact, uh, uh, you know, given the relative cost to make that uh, to make mm-hmm. that worthwhile. So it's always going to keep changing. But I think we are in a particularly, you know, one of those one of those moments where people are trying to sort out. We're all like the toddlers trying to figure out like, right. what's our favorite toy. How do you use it? Or is it something that we can just use when we feel we need to? Or is it, you know, usually mm. when you get that first tool as a toddler, the first toy as a toddler, it's an obsession, you know, mm. you play with it until you wear it out. And we're kind of like that sometimes where we're spending way too much time on, on social media and not as much time. And I think there's going to be some reversion on that and, you know, start giving more equal time to all of our toys. I know in our work, we always you know, begin with the audience in mind, but I know audiences, how you reach audiences, how you identify audiences has changed a lot. Can you contrast your time in the White House and what, you know, trying to reach the audience was yeah. like then to what you now experience and see in the world? We were, it was a very different time. It was, um, it was hard to be in the White House and to do an effective job of segmenting your message to specific audiences and that's because you have this you know giant bullhorn you know you're going to go out and you're going to stand at one podium and say something make an announcement about it could be anything from uh things affecting uh you know war and peace to the financial crisis to you know healthcare policy whatever you're going to come out and say you know you, you tend to be saying it in one voice from one podium and then you rely on a lot of distributors of your news to sometimes distribute it directly, but or you know, frequently interpret it and reinterpret it and distribute it to people. And and so that's not as effective. You know, one the one thing we uh, were coming in the, uh, the Bush administration, look at the Obama administration, very envious of uh, their ability to use digital channels really well, not just the, the social digital, but also even just to you know, make really good use of um, email lists mm-hmm. and uh, micro-targeting uh, using different, you know, different blog sites to, you know, to reach segmented people with, you know, with, uh, with particular messages. And, uh, and they were very, very effective at it and did a, did a wonderful job 
using, uh, you know, using those tools. And today, of course, it is easier because you can, uh, you know, you can actually hide messages, you know, that you can have, right. You can have a message that is only heard by and seen by certain kinds of people who, you know, will be receptive to that language and that impression. So that's very different from like when you, you know, I remember talking to uh, President Bush about his, uh, you know, com- you know, communicating, you know, famously, uh, you know, not the, not the best, not the most articulate uh, president. <laughs> when he was giving a talk about something, he was thinking about uh, how it would be heard by all of the audiences. So he was thinking about how it would be heard by heads of state, how it would be heard by our enemies, how it would be heard by, our troops in the field, how it would be heard by members of Congress, how it would be heard by market mm. participants, how it would be heard by regular uh, citizens out in the country. And if you think about that, like if you think about, you know, trying to craft your rhetoric to meet the uh, expectations and ears of those really different audiences, <sighs> all with one speech or one remark or comment, you can understand why you could get tripped up and, and, and not, not be as uh, articulate as you like to be. That's an impossible task, mm-hmm. you know? So today to be able to use, use the tools to speak, you know, uh, you know, more directly to, to, to different audiences, segment those audiences, you know, when we talk about, you know, how to craft messaging and to be, you know, to be effective communicators, we talk about, you know, meeting the audience where they are. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to speak over the audience. You don't want to dumb it down too much for a sophisticated audience. You have to know where the audience is, what their level of sophistication, understanding, knowledge, sentiment about an issue is, and get close to that and then lead them to a place where, you know, if you want to try to persuade them or, or teach them new information, you have to start with where they are not force them to jump over a chasm and uh, mm-hmm. on their own, right? You have to help them. So it's easier to do that today than it ever was before. You know, mm-hmm. you could, you can, you can, I could talk about one issue uh, with, you know, one set of information and this isn't, there's nothing duplicitous about this. It's just, it's just using the, the, the appropriate level of information for the appropriate audience. And it's just never been easier to do that because you have all of these channels and all of these ways of reaching people. And, and, and so you can be very, you know, very effective doing that. That's right. When I say, when I look at the president and say, well, you know, what, there, there is some level of effectiveness with his using Twitter, but it's not the most effective way to use it because it's, there's, no, there's no plan to it. There's no strategy right. to it. There's no tailoring to it, right? It's just whatever uh, enters his mind uh, he uses. So we have this ability now, as you said, to target, to really segment through digital channels, through analysis and deliver a you know, really curated message. But I also imagine, at least this with the president, that social media distributes, reposts, repackages those targeted messages to other groups in ways that can be very inflammatory. And dangerous for this, yeah, and maybe not even, uh, and maybe not even accurate, and that's actually the, yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> the, yeah, that's the, um, that's the frightening downside to the tools that you have is that people can take those messages and put the, take them out of context, and you know we saw, you know we had some famous now examples over the past uh, year or so, you know, like the confrontation on the National Mall between the students, you know, wearing the MAGA, uh, you know, have right. pro Trump students in a confrontation with Native Americans that, you know, looked to me and others like it was the students who were in the wrong. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, I, I, I misinterpreted that. That wasn't actually what happened. 
you know, it confirmed my prior views of what I thought, you know, these kids might be doing harassing, you know, Native Americans. And, uh, you know, I, I, I admit to that, that I haven't been fooled by the social media grabbing that video and distributing it without, you know, at, at lightning speed. Mm-hmm. And um, you have a reaction and, to it when you see and you it. Have, and you have a reaction to it. Exactly. And so that's one, like you take, you know, something that actually did happen, right. uh, capturing it and presenting right. it in a way that is, you know, that maybe isn't accurate. And then there's the next level, which is taking things that never happened, you know, I mean, right. the, the, the ability to use actual voice and pictures and video. Yeah, I've heard uh, about this now that you can and, create videos using where they take someone's voice and, and video footage and manufacture it. It's, it's really, it's, it's really, uh, that's frightening. Uh, you know, we may, we may have to, in that case, end up relying on technology to filter out those kinds of things. I mean, one thing that, that um, you know, machine learning is actually, you know, very, better than humans at, at, at finding things that are uh, real versus things that are unreal. And we may have to rely on mm-hmm. AI and machine learning and algorithms to try to filter that stuff out. But if you're applying technology in those ways to filter information, you're going to have some of these reactions that we see from people who are who have a distrust mm-hmm. of the people who are creating the algorithms and creating the the filters. So it's a it's you know it's, it, these are it's a very complicated time, and mm-hmm. it can be a very frightening time. And we know that the tools are there. We saw it in 2016. Uh, we had the former FBI director uh, Robert Mueller testifying this week saying that foreign governments every single day are trying mm-hmm. to use these tools to influence American voters. I can tell you I've, saw it, I've seen it in uh, in European countries as mm-hmm. well, in impacting um, elections in those countries. We're so about they, to have they, an election here in Canada. That I know it's a concern here as well. I think it's going to be everywhere um, and, and, uh, and trying to figure out what are the, you know, the defense of the dark arts to, right. to you know, tackle, to, to com- combat uh, the bad actors. I feel like we're in a we're in a technology race to try to mm-hmm. uh, protect ourselves, but it has to be done. We can't sleep on that. Yeah, and and just to kind of sum it all up, you know, that you really shown we're we're in this place of incredible transformation from you know the days of the news, you know, this, the six o'clock news to the no o'clock news to the point yeah. where you know is the press secretary briefing even relevant you know can i even trust what i'm seeing when it's video you know so thank you for sharing your journey and just this place it's gotten us to and, and i'd love for anyone listening if, if there were three pieces of advice you would give to people you know the people who listen to this podcast they lead companies they manage people they're grappling in in various ways with the same challenges of which tools to use which to trust how to reach people what would be the three pieces of, of advice that you would share with them for how to lead and inspire in this uncertain world? I think one is to take advantage of the tools to be communicating and educating all the time with your, uh, you know, with your key audiences. That, that is both a, an opportunity and it's a defense, right? You're investing in uh, understanding, you know, your customers, your clients, your employees, you know, all of the stakeholders who are important to you and your success going forward 
uh, and who can, you know, they could, they could hurt if they misunderstand uh, something about you, they can hurt, hurt your performance. Uh, you can have, if it's thinking about employees, you can have, uh, if people misunderstand your views and what you're about, they can choose to stay away and not come to work for you. And talent acquisition is so important right now. So everyone should be communicating, educating, talking about who you are, what you're about, what's important every day. And when I say it's an investment, it's because you don't know when the next thing is going to happen where people are going to, you're going to be attacked or people are going to be misunderstand what Mm -hmm. you're trying to do. And when you're trying to educate in the midst of a firestorm, it's really difficult. It's really, right? The news cycle is very crowded. Um, It's loud. Uh, people are angry and emotional and they don't listen the, well when they're the angry. wrong time to create a connection, right? Absolutely the wrong time. So, uh, so that's, so that's what, that's one is like, okay. all, like use these tools. Second is maybe it should be reversed a little bit, but you know, you have to be, you have to be about something, you know, you have to have a, you have to have a mission. You have to have like a sense of, 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 you know, what it is that you're trying to do. And again, I think this has like, you know, multiple benefits, not just on how you're perceived, but you do have to think about like, what is your purpose for of being, of being, you know, companies, not just to return value to shareholders. That's like, that's, that's a, that's a, an output is returning value mm-hmm. to shareholders. How you get there is what you're about. What are your, you know, what is your mission? What do you care about? What are your values? Um, those are uh, those you can use technology to help you figure that out you know you can use the mm-hmm. you can use it by get, by having you know feedback loop taking in information about what you learn about all of your all of your stakeholders to help inform you but but you have to be about something and it's the the most durable con- uh, companies today you know are going to be thinking that way about mm-hmm. what they're about and then if you think about just like just purely on the as as we all are whether you're a company or a citizen we're all consumers of news and that, you know, mm-hmm. story I told earlier about the, the confrontation on the national mall is uh, I think all of us, even though we have all of this ready access to news and information and knowledge is we have to be better consumers and we should be teaching how to be better consumers. And one piece of that is slowing down a beat to take a moment before you hit the share button, before you hit the like button before you, you know, uh, react to something that you're seeing, to take a moment, check it out, think about trusted sources of news, um, you know, really take your time, take a little bit of time to be much better consumers of the things that you're, uh, that you're seeing. And that's, I think that's as a, that's as much a civic responsibility Mm -hmm. as anything else. Like we have that obligation to, you know, to ourselves, we have it to our fellow citizens to be good consumers of what we're seeing, to, you know, see and learn, but also, you know, because now we're all publishers to know what we're sharing and think about it and, and clearly understand it, understand the consequences of it. Well, Tony, I really appreciate you, you taking your time to share with me your perspectives on how the world has changed. I mean, just you, you put it all together and, you know, it's hard to believe my, my career, I just hit, just turned 40 and I've just spent 20 years in the leadership communication business. And, you know, listening to you reflect on the pace of change just brings home how much things have changed in how we communicate and, and the impacts of that in this time. So, uh, and what an uncertain time we still find ourselves in. So thanks for providing, if not some certainty, some clarity about uh, where we're at today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. All the best. 
I hope you enjoyed this first episode of the second season of the Inspire podcast with Tony Fratto. So neat to have that perspective of someone who was in the White House and saw how the communication norms from the uh, Office of the President have changed even since then and what we can all take away from that. I certainly got a lot out of it. If you enjoyed this episode, if you're enjoying the Inspire podcast, please rate and review us on Apple iTunes or whatever platform you're using. Next week, I have another great guest, Tim Bezbachenko. Tim is the general manager of the Columbus Crew. This is, if you're not a soccer fan, the MLSC soccer team uh, in Columbus. And uh, Tim, re- prior to that, was the general manager of the league-winning uh, TFC, Toronto Football Club. And he joins me to talk about his journey uh, from lawyer to leader and the lessons he's picked up along the way about creating a vision and uh, when to rush it, when not to rush it, and how it's gotten him to the top. So tune in in two weeks for that episode. Thanks.